If you left home at all in 2019, whether you realize it or not, you probably at some point heard the country hip-hop phenomenon Old Town Road. It topped the Hot 100 for a record-breaking 19 weeks, and capitalizing on this success, Wrangler Jeans released a limited edition collaboration with its rapper creator, Lil Nas. To say Twitter went nuts would put it mildly. Wrangler fans threatened boycotts, accused them of taking the cowboy out of country, and labeled the partnership as cultural appropriation. Responding to this pearl-clutching, African-American pop-cultural critic Jean Murray quipped, How can you appropriate something you played a significant part in shaping? I think that's a pretty good mic drop. Mention the word cowboy today, and you might think of Gary Cooper in High Noon, or Gene Autry singing Under Starry Skies, but it's well documented that in addition to countless Mexican vaqueros, back in the 1800s, one out of every four cowboys were black, many of them ex-slaves. But this isn't a narrative that fits neatly in the romanticized American psyche. And when Buffalo Bill and others started taking Wild West shows on the road, these men and their stories got shut out. So much so that today mainstream society lamentably views country music and cowboy culture as almost exclusively white. But this isn't only reductive, but totally untrue. And today, I'm honored to introduce you to a few who are doing their part to correct this. I'm Evan Stern. And this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, it deserves mentioning that a number of podcasts played a significant role in providing me with the inspiration to develop Vanishing Postcards. One of them is a grassroots storytelling program from Baltimore called Out of the Blocks. Each episode, the producers visit one city block, and they make it their mission to meet and interview everyone on that entire block about life. It's a fascinating, immersive collage of stories and soundscapes set to an original music score. Whether talking to barbers or sidewalk performers, the subjects captured all exhibit measures of individual grace, and it's been one of my favorite shows for years. It's really special, so do yourself a favor and find Out of the Blocks wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get on with the show. I have a speech impediment. I lost my voice to something called vocal dysphonia. And it's hard for me to talk. After taking in the boots, buckle, and hat, when you meet Larry Callis, the first thing you notice is his voice. And as it's inescapable when talking with a new face, he likes to address it straight out of the gate. But I've learned from experience that quiet voices are never to be underestimated. When I first wanted to open up a museum, I wanted somebody else to do it because I couldn't talk. And I heard God just put it on my heart, say, you open up. I said, well, God, I can't even talk. He said, step out in faith. And that's what I did. We're sitting near the entrance of his Black Cowboy Museum in Rosenberg, about half an hour outside of Houston. It's a two-room, linoleum-tiled space tucked between an eyelash studio and bathroom remodeler showroom in a nondescript strip mall a few blocks off Maine. 
Nothing about where we are screams tourist destination, but it's worth the trip because when you take a tour with Mr. Callis, you're in the presence of a man on a mission. Well, the most important thing is to let people know there were black cowboys. Because what my dad did, it would have went in vain. Everything he did was a cowboy. He worked hard. He did everything he was supposed to do. And he never got any recognition. And these other black cowboys, the word cowboy came from slaves. You had a house boy, a yard boy, and somebody worked the cows. That was the cowboy. It wasn't a, the white guy you saw on TV, riding a horse. He wasn't a cowboy, he was an actor. He was imitating black cowboys in Texas. And, and you know, people didn't even know there were black cowboys. They were the first cowboys. And they were from right here in Fort Bend County. And people didn't even know that. I didn't know it. I just knew on the ranch that I grew up on, 90% of the people, the cowboys out there were black. And they the ones who did all the work. And, you know, and back in the 1820s and 50s, there was nothing but black cowboys. I, you know, I don't mean to bust anybody's bubble, but there wasn't any white cowboys. They refused to be called a cowboy because cowboy meant a slave, an ex-slave. They called themselves a cow hand or a cow wrangler. They wouldn't be called cowboys until the black cowboy made it famous to be a cowboy. The cowboy life is in Larry's blood. His father was a cowboy, his grandfather was a cowboy, all his uncles were cowboys, and at age three, he knew he'd be one too. I didn't say I was gonna become a cowboy. My daddy put me on a horse and I said, me cowboy. <laughs> that was my first word, said me cowboy. And I wanted my boots and my hat, and I just knew I was going to be a cowboy. But despite all of this, due to whitewashing in Hollywood, Marlboro, and of course some shameful racist history, because of the color of his skin, Larry Callis doesn't fit the mold of what too many of us have been conditioned to think a cowboy should look like. Uh, there was this one black cowboy that was famous. He was born in 1838. His name was Bass Rees. He was so tough and so bad, when he grew up, he became a Texas Ranger. He captured over 3,000 convicts in his lifetime. He was one good cowboy. He was a Christian man. He's never been shot. He's never been wounded. And he was a good person. And then, when they started talking about him on the radio, they admitted that he was black. But so many people called in and said they wasn't gonna listen to the radio station because they were talking about the Lone Ranger. Bass Reeves was the first Lone Ranger, the real Lone Ranger. He captured 3,000 convicts and they started singing about him. They started writing stories about him. And then they got on the radio and started talking about him. 
And they said, hey, man, who is Bass Reeves? You know, people call in. The guy said, oh, it was a black man. And people called in millions of phone calls saying they wasn't going to listen to that radio station anymore. And the man said, why? They said, because you said the Lone Ranger was a black man. He had never dealt with that before. So he said, he didn't want to lose his audience. So he said, no, no. I didn't say it was a black man. I said he wore a black mask. So the people started listening to the radio again. He had to be a white man with a black mask. When they put him on TV, he was a white man with a black mask. But originally, he was Bastries. Isn't that something? After a while, we get up, and Larry sets about leading me around. He shows me a reproduction of a painting by Frederick Remington. We stop by some saddles, and he speaks of how much of their craftsmanship can be traced to the Moors in Spain. Then he points to an old black-and-white photo of a teenager coming out of the gates at a rodeo. Hey, you see this guy on the bull over there? That's my cousin, Tex Williams. He's from El Campo, Texas. He was the first black to get an all-white rodeo in Texas, and he won it in 1968 and 67. Guess who the second black was? Oh, I didn't, I didn't want to toot my own horn, but yes, I was. <laughs> That's a joke I tell people. And people always guess, uh, it was you? And I go, yeah, it was me. 1972. At this, I go ahead and ask what it was like working the rodeo circuit. And while he chooses not to dwell or look back in bitterness, he's forthright when he says it wasn't easy. I worked the white rodeos Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I worked the black rodeos on Sundays. And when I went to the white rodeos, there was so much discrimination in the 50s and 60s. I mean, I could sit here and... We could talk for hours and I still wouldn't tell you all the stuff. But that just something happened back then. Discrimination has no doubt followed Mr. Callis throughout his life, making his choice to pursue a path of nonconformity courageous. When I went to school, I started wearing cowboy boots, you know, and uh, uh, dressing like a cowboy. And people, man, they got on me on the black side, got on me for being somebody who thought I wanted to be white, and the white saying, hey, you can't dress like us. You know, you ain't, you, 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 you the N-word, you know? No, I didn't care. I had cowboys all in my family, but none of them dressed that way in public and went out, you know, to school like that. He even tells me he got a lot of flack in his own household when, as a teenager, he picked up a guitar and started taking a shine to country music. Oh, yeah, in my own house. My brothers. You know, I say, boy, you listen to an old hillbilly, you know, stuff. And I say, I like it, but it ain't hillbilly. I say, it's country. You know, I'm trying to tell them it's country, it's not hillbilly. And my mom said, ain't nothing but hillbilly, boy. <laughs> then, by happenstance, he saw Charlie Pride perform, and his life was changed. Yeah, I was in Johnson City uh, in 1968, and uh, he, was, uh, he was at a rodeo, 
Oh, that we went to. And when I heard of Charlie Pride, it was two years before that. I heard of Charlie Pride in 67 or 60, you know, starting around about that time. And, but I never saw a picture of him. My white friends never told me he was black. When I went to Johnson City, they came up to me and said, Hey, Larry, you going to see Charlie Pride? Well, I said I didn't want to see him. You know, I thought it was a white guy, you know, and we wasn't supposed to like country music back then. So they said, Larry, come on, you can see him. He's in the window over here. You can see him in the window. And I said, I walked up to the window. I looked in the window. And I said, where is he? They say he's got the microphone. He's a man in the middle with the microphone. I see. Oh, I see a black guy putting a microphone in a microphone stand. He said, that's Charlie Pride. <laughs> I said, that's him? Man, I was so shocked. I was sitting and listening to him for about an hour or two, and I couldn't keep my eyes off of him. He was so good. I knew all his songs. I'd heard him, but I didn't know he was black. It shocked me. All my white friends said, Larry, you didn't know Charlie Pride was black? I said, nope. Oh, man, that was a big thing for me. I said, I saw all the women, you know, screaming for him. I saw all the people screaming for him. I said, this man can change things, you know. And I said, I can sing like Charlie Pride. And when I found out he was black, he really became my favorite. And I started singing nothing but Charlie Pride songs. If rodeos were his first love, then music was most certainly his second. And he was good at it. Really good. Uh, I've opened for Selena. I've opened for, for Emilio. I've opened for Travis Tritt. I've opened for some pretty big names. That's before I lost my voice. He never got the chance to make an album. But when I ask if he has any recordings to share, he shows me an old, warped, grainy video from Houston Access TV. Appropriately, the song he sings was dedicated to his idol. Just going to take a quick break to say that if you've been enjoying Vanishing Postcards, then Gravy is definitely another podcast you need to be listening to. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories about the changing American South. Reporters dig into lesser-known corners of the region and talk to the folks who grow, cook, and serve our daily meals. Hear stories of Indian sweets in North Carolina and Cuban sandwich controversies. Follow pastrami and pasteles from Providence to plates around the South and the world, or 
get to know some of the inspiring figures working to introduce Indonesian food to Houston. Produced in fantastic documentary style, Gravy introduces its audience to Southerners who are reinventing the region for a more delicious future, and I recommend you give it a listen by finding Gravy wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get back to the show. After years of hard work and gigging, things seemed to be coming together for Larry's music career when Nashville legend Irv Woolsey, manager of George Strait and Leanne Womack, started to get behind him. But the timing couldn't have been worse. Two weeks a week, Irv Woolsey called me, George Strait's manager. He said, man, I'm a fly in Nashville. I want you to record, you know, a demo. So I flew up there and recorded the demo, but when I was flying up there, I knew I was losing my voice. I had just started losing my voice two weeks before I flew up there. And I told him, I said, hey, Irv, I'm, I'm losing my voice. He said, no, you're just nervous because I'm Irv Wolsey. I said, no, I, th- I don't think I get nervous anymore, but he flew up there and they could tell. As a singer myself, this story devastates me. But Larry credits his faith and vocal therapy for helping to get him back on track. It was really devastating because I was a mailman. I had to go door to door, you know, with a package. And I said, "Uh, it's a mailman. I could barely talk back then. And people, what, who? And they didn't want to open the door. And so I started a speech therapist. And they said, Larry, mailman is a hard word to say for you. Can you say postman? I didn't like to be called a postman. And I'd knock on the door and they'd say, who is it? I said, it's the postman. You know, I could say postman. Uh, when I really noticed, I started losing my voice when I couldn't say my son's name. His name's Dylan. And I couldn't call his name. I said, and they say, he have a middle name. I say, yeah, it's Scott. But we don't call our kids by the middle name. So um, they couldn't help me in the speech, but they just told me which words to use. He learned how to talk in new ways, continued to deliver mail, still works in rodeos, and even performs with his guitar. But I've heard said that our lives often speak to us in whispers. And when Larry began nearing retirement, felt pushed, as he says, to step out in faith. And the first time in my life, if I stepped out in faith, man, this what happened. This music here, everything was given to me. It was all donated. Everything except that picture and a, and a couple of these pictures up here. But everything else was donated to me. When I said I wanted to open up a black cowboy museum, people just started bringing me stuff right here in Rosenberg. It just, they just kept bringing me stuff. Since officially opening in 2017, Larry's collection has grown, 
and so has his press and attention. But in regard to preserving this history, Mr. Callis is hardly a lone figure. My dad was rodeoing and I was going to rodeos. It was just me and him. And, and matter of fact, I didn't know I was black until I, they told me because <laughs> I was going to all white rodeos and so, you know, and I dressed Western and so, you know, from a, from a young kid, I would consider country when country wasn't cool, <laughs> you know. Like Larry, Murtis Steitman Jr.'s father was, or I should say is, a cowboy. But Murtis Sr. isn't just any cowboy. People call him the Jackie Robinson of rodeo as he broke color barriers to become the first African-American to compete at the National Finals Rodeo in 1964. My daddy was rodeo in 62, okay? So in an all-white sport, there was probably a whole lot of prejudice going on for him for sure. But uh, uh, the Cowboys was different. They were like, hey, man, we want to compete against the best. And that man is the best, you know what I'm saying? They didn't look at he was black. They was like... That's the best. <laughs> we, you know, what can we do? To, how are we going to be? And then when they are the top and he's chasing them, they're looking down. Like, oh, man, he's coming after me, you know. And so it wasn't the Cowboys. Uh, I, I don't think it was the, uh, probably more of the judges. Uh, I see a lot of pictures of my father, you know, when he was riding in like an all-white arena, an all-white. Well, if you look real closely at uh, the pictures, the judges weren't even looking at him. So, you know, how can you judge if you ain't looking at him? So he'd have won more rodeos if they would have been fair. But, you know, after a period of time, you know, they say, hey, he, my father wasn't a bully. He wouldn't talk noise. He'd just take it as it is. If he lost, he lost. And he would just take it, like I said, he would just take it in stride. You know, like. Ultimately, Murtis Sr.'s talent proved undeniable. So much so, Cliff Robertson cast him to play himself in the movie J.W. Coop. It was in Crockett, Texas. And uh, uh, it was segregated, and we had the uh, theater, uh, uh, and so the whites was downstairs, the blacks was upstairs. And uh, to go to the theater and see your dad on the big screen, that was a moment. Then I was like, you know, this man done done something, you know what I'm saying, how, you know. And uh, we was, it was cool, you know what I'm saying. I had my chest stuck out, yeah, that's right, my dad's in the movie, you know. Since then, Murtis Sr. has been inducted into both the Pro Rodeo and National Cowboy Hall of Fames, and a bronze statue of him now stands in his once segregated hometown of Crockett. But despite growing up around this glory, his son learned early on that bull riding wasn't for him. But you know, to be truthful, uh, when I got on a, a bull, uh, uh, we, I paid $25 to get on a bull, okay? And you made a win $100, and then that just didn't add up to me. You know what I'm A broke back for $25? No, nah, I don't think so. Instead, Murtis found his passion in trail rides. Overnight, group, horseback caravans. This tradition, of course, dates to the pioneer days, but experienced a resurgence in the 50s when groups like the Saltgrass started making these epic journeys again to honor Western history. Today, Murtis serves as the leader of the Prairie View Trail Riders, who each February travel 88 miles on horses from Hempstead to downtown Houston to help kick off the rodeo and livestock show. His father and a group of friends formed the association with Texas A&M Prairie View in 1957, when men of color weren't welcome to join any of the previously established rides. Well, they, they first ride was, they was, had to be escorted by the National Guards because uh, uh, at that time, it's definitely uh, racism, really bad, and so they, they just told them they just had to be really careful, uh, and so they were just trail riders, uh, and they stayed to, they stayed to themselves. 
That inaugural ride was made up of only 10. Today, the organization's membership has grown to include over 300 and regularly takes some of Houston's top prizes, something that would have been unthinkable 63 years ago. We strive to be the best, uh, when I'm saying the best, uh, uh, trail uh, to compete. Last year we won the first place and we won the best in trails and we won two awards. This year we came back and did the same thing. That's a great moment when you can compete and go back to be back-to-back -back champions, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know. And we're going back again this year to have a rodeo, so. But this group's mission goes far beyond trophies and an annual week-long ride. They award scholarships, host show-and-tell demonstrations at schools, and introducing these interests to kids is now what gives Murtis the most reward. Today we're talking next to a herd of horses on the ranch of Larry Wilkins, who provides his land for Prairie View's youth club as an instructional center. Unlike Murtis, Larry didn't grow up around cowboys or rodeos, but through his daughter, discovered a love for horses that has consumed his life now for the better part of 20 years. But the best thing about it is, ultimately when you see the look on kids' faces, I'm talking about two, three, four-year-old kids that just amaze. And then you see the amazement on how they bond with the horse. Uh, last week we had a young kid come up and he had some kind of autism. And his parents just didn't think he was gonna get close to the horse at all. And an hour later we had to pry the little boy away from the horse. So that's a, that's a reward for me is to see how these animals can change people's lives. Also, these animals don't know anything about racial prejudice. They don't know anything about police brutality. They don't know anything about killing people. Um, and they're gonna bond with me, as well as you, as well as Mr. Dightman, and anybody else. Through working with these animals, he tells me, children are taught values that set them up for success that goes far beyond riding. Often I say it's called invisible. As long as you do right things, people will never know you. You become invisible. But the minute I go out and get busted doing something, it's worldwide news. My kids are invisible. I want them to stay invisible. I don't want them doing anything that's going to get them in trouble. When they become visible, I want them to be something positive. But one group he passionately believes merits visibility are black cowboys. The whole image of black people, period. Cowboys, electricians, plumbers, brain surgeons, they all got lost in American culture, in the United States culture. They were totally omitted. You know, growing up in, in, in I'm 67 years old. Growing up in school, I never read a book that had anything to do with a black cowboy. And when I was coming up, cowboys, Indians, Westerns were a mainstay on TV. Never seen a black one. Never thought anything about a black cowboy. So black cowboys did a lot on the ranches uh, to help, but none of that was ever told. Hearing this, I think back to the seventh grade when, as required by state curriculum, I took Texas history. It was a favorite subject, but while I even had the benefit of a great African-American teacher, don't remember any discussions of black cowboys, 
and know that black figures only receive passing mention in our textbooks. But it doesn't and shouldn't have to be this way. Representation does matter, and change can start easily enough by listening to and honoring voices like these. Concerning this, as I prepare to say goodbye to Mr. Callis, he tells me he rests easily at night, knowing that his little museum has already made a difference. Well, I just want people to really know who the cowboys were. And I think I'm getting it out. And I was on the front page of the New York Times. And that's what, you know, it's, um, you know, if I don't do anything else anymore, I got the word out. I got the word out that there were black cowboys and people are beginning to see it. My thanks to Larry Callis, Murtis Deitman Jr., and Larry Wilkins for making time to speak with me. For more info and to plan your visit to Larry's museum, check out blackcowboymuseum.org. I also thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow and guarantees you will never miss an episode. As always, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more info, please find us on Instagram or visit vanishingpostcards.com where we'd love to hear from you if you have any stories you care to repeat or know of any places we should consider visiting. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krauss and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.